Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And we're back. It's Let's Hear It. We're so glad to have you. Thank you for dropping in. You've found us. We would love to spend some time with you. We're glad you're here. And as always, I'm so glad you're here, Mr. Brown. Thank <laughs> Mr. you for Rogers. being here for Let's Hear Hey, come on. My good friend, Mr. Rogers. It's trying times. So we want to in. welcome everybody in. It's exciting. You put on your cardigan and your comfortable <laughs> slipper shoes. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine. I'm, I'm happy that we have pretty good vaccination rates in my environs. And it seems like people are kind of starting to come out and, you know, do stuff again. And that's awesome. So how are things in your neck of the world? About the same. I I have hope in my heart. That's (laughs) how they are. That's all you can ask for is hope in your heart. I got. (laughs) Well, speaking of hope, we have a hopeful voice on the podcast today. (laughs) Speaking of hope, we have a hopeful voice in the podcast today. So tell us who we're going to listen to, because I, 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 this is a great conversation and I can't wait to talk about it when we're done. We're going to I had a conversation with full disclosure, an old crony friend, colleague. of Shocking. Mine. What a surprise. I, well, <laughs> these these things happen. A fascinating and extraordinary gentleman named yeah. Lowell Weiss. Mm. And Lowell has had an amazing career from Atlantic Monthly Magazine to writing speeches for Al Gore and then Bill Clinton. And then he worked at the Gates Foundation for somebody else. So Lowell sort of knows stuff. And <laughs> and now he is a consultant. He runs a, a shop called Cascade Philanthropy. And he advises philanthropists on how to do their philanthropy. And he has taken everything he has learned over these years and rolled it up into into the work that he is doing now. And he's actually right now helping to organize a philanthropic community called Leap of Reason, which mm-hmm. is what is, is they've just released it recently. And it is a, a really a fascinating set of materials and resources for people who are interested in philanthropy. Well, this is quite the name drop podcast. There's a lot of heavy duty <laughs> names that go around. But man, it's a great conversation. And Lowell Weiss, thank you so much. Uh, President Cascade Philanthropy Advisors, old crony of Eric's, uh, but clearly a thoughtful and interesting person to hear from. Um, let's listen to Lowell Weiss here on Let's Hear It, and then we'll come back and we'll talk. Welcome to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Lowell Weiss, the president of Cascade Philanthropy Advisors. He is the smartest human being ever to walk the planet. He does the New York Times crossword puzzle in Sharpie with his toes in 30 seconds. Lowell Weiss, no pressure at all. Welcome to Let's Hear It. Eric. (laughs) 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 That's what's called overpromise. 
Yeah, no doubt. But uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. And I love kibitzing with you. Lowell, we go back. And I'm just, I'm very, very thrilled. Very thrilled is probably, you're not supposed to say it that way. I am thrilled to have you as a guest on this show because I think you have taught me a whole, much of what I know about communications, certainly is more than I'll ever know about philanthropy. And it just kind of came together that we had a chance to talk about it because you have a fun project that you're working on, which we'll get to in the second part of the show. But Lowell, you also have one of my favorite kind of backstories, weird way into philanthropy. You started out as a, you were a writer. You started as a as a real writer who actually made his living writing like real people do by by working for a publication that sells its product to human beings for money. Is that correct? Yes and no. I mean, I did start <laughs> my career at the Atlantic <laughs> Monthly, but even in those days, it wasn't making money. So it wasn't uh, making, making money, money but part, it took money. <laughs> Someone had to pay did. money. Some people, some it people be, paid for it. Profitable. <laughs> it has to be. Yes. A, a, you didn't give it away for free. No. Uh, well, there were techniques for for bumping up uh, numbers, circulation numbers that did involve some free copies. But in any event, um, you're you're once again uh, generously overstating because my career at the Atlantic was the very beginning of my career. And uh, I was doing everything from answering phones to fact checking to writing little blurbs. So I did get a chance to learn from some of the greatest writers on the planet. But in those days, the most fancy thing that I got to do was occasionally writing a, a, a feature piece for the, the magazine as a freelancer. But my real book of business was, was fact checking and uh, being a research assistant for an incredible managing editor. So it was the place I cut my teeth and learned a lot from some of the best. So you're making copies and they go, oh my God, we need a feature. So let's get someone to write a feature. Mm, that guy near the copy machine. What's your, you do it. Okay. That's how that went. Not exactly. I, I mean, so. it was much more <laughs> of going through, I, I thought I should get a little bit of benefit of the doubt by being an in-house person who was willing to do anyone's dirty work. But no, I had to go through the exact same process that any freelancer would have to go through yeah. with a very formal proposal. And uh, I must have submitted, you know, 10 times as many proposals as I actually got commissioned pieces. So it was a, it was a tough gauntlet, but every minute I was there was a learning experience. And I still am very close with a number of my friends who are still there. What's your favorite piece you wrote for the Atlantic? For the Atlantic? Was I would 100 say- 100-year-old magazine, right? Yeah. 200-year-old um, magazine? Well, it's uh, about 150. 150, um, okay. Before they invented yeah. paper. <laughs> wrote it on papyrus. Well, actually, if this were a, not a podcast, but a video cast, I, I would show you some of the very old bound volumes and they were very much on paper. In any event, I think my favorite piece, so I went to Vietnam back before we had diplomatic relations with Vietnam. And it was uh, thanks to a, a very close friend of mine from college who had ties in Vietnam and was bringing a study tour. I think he was working for the Ford Foundation at the time, and he was bringing a study tour back to Vietnam. And most of the people were a generation older than I was. Most of them had ties to the Viet, very direct ties to the Vietnam War. I'm born in 1968, which was the height of the Vietnam War, but I don't have memories of it. And so uh, being back in Vietnam with them was an incredible experience, very, very emotional, especially for the Vietnam vets. 
but being there and being a witness to that experience that they were going through was very powerful. And I came back and pitched a story to the Atlantic, not about the experience I had in Vietnam, but about the Vietnamese ex American experience here in the United States. And so my reporting uh, was based in Boston, which is where the Atlantic was. That was very easy for me to do, and also involved going to what is known as Little Saigon in Westminster, California, not far from you, to be let into that circle of trust in a community that obviously had been quite traumatized. That, that was a big deal. I, I loved that piece. Ah, well, we will dig it up and link to it on the website if we can find it. If it's, if it's not buried oh, behind a there. paywall, the schmoes make you pay now. No, I think it's there. I, oh, I good. had reason to go back and look at it when I was having a conversation. I think it was after I read the book, The Sympathizer, and was uh, just blown away by the beauty of that writing. It was a Pulitzer Prize winner, a National Book Award winner that came out a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, some of the same dynamics I covered, but not with that kind of eloquence. <laughs> So I I care I don't actually have not memorized your your journey but it includes a couple of fairly famous and re relatively colorful political figures namely James Carville and Bill Clinton but what what order did you go in or perhaps you just <laughs> it was right a, well it recent. started with it started with uh, James Carville in 1995 I. Uh, moved to D.C. for about six months to help him write a slapstick book that that wound up doing very well, had a very humble name. It was called We're Right, They're Wrong. And that was a great entree to, I had grown up in Washington, D.C., but did not have a political upbringing. So the Carville book really gave me an entree to political Washington in a way that I had never seen. And that led to a speechwriting gig for Gore during the 96 campaign. And then writing during most of the second term for Bill Clinton. So no offense, but Al Gore was not known for the stem-winding eloquence on the stuff. I think that's fair. Did, did you try and... to pump some some CO2 into, into Gore and he would you know, turn it back into something else? Well, it did produce some incredible learning. And occasionally these days, when I have a chance to talk about writing, I can contrast some of the things that I learned during my time writing for Clinton, that things I had to unlearn from my time writing for Gore. <laughs> and it's not his fault. I mean, he has strengths too, and his speechwriters are, uh, you know, when they're when they're working well, they can really play up his incredible strengths. He is a very very bright man. But I would say if I had to distill it down to one key lesson that might be useful to folks who are listening today, it's that Gore was very good at making a persuasive head argument, but just didn't invest a lot of himself in explaining the heart reasons for a particular policy choice. Whereas Clinton was phenomenal at doing both and, and working back and forth between head and heart quite seamlessly. So phenomenal experience for multiple reasons, um, but primarily because it made me a much better writer to see how two very, very smart people communicated very differently. And, and frankly, as you've alluded to, Clinton was more effective because he could communicate from the heart. He didn't, as, as you will remember from your political days, Clinton's strength was not 10 cent words or even nickel words. It was just speaking in very plain language about things that he really cared about and could convey that caring. We're seeing that now with Biden, who's not as eloquent as Clinton, but when he 
has those quiet moments as he did so, so unexpectedly and beautifully in that inaugural address, the quiet moments where he just spoke from the heart, spoke with real empathy, those, those are gonna be memorable lines from the speech. They won't be memorable in a must be carved in marble kind of way, but in a way of speaking to the moment and, and feeling like he was just not reading the words of a speechwriter, but really speaking with that from the heart with authenticity, I think that came through beautifully. So I, I want to tell my, my Al Gore story because I, I never get to tell it. I yeah. was working at the Center for a New American Dream, which was a nonprofit organization that was closed on Friday. We wore jeans and sneakers, and our motto was more fun, less stuff. We could not have been less consequential. It was a, I mean, it was a very, very down-home kind of place. And Al Gore called one of our board members because he was writing a book about people who were living with less and, you know— whatever, walking softly on the on the earth and such. And he wanted to talk to people. So I had a long list of people who would talk about how they were knitting sweaters out of old mop heads and stuff like that. And would, uh, so I, I gave him all these names. And I go to lunch and I come back and I see there's a message from Al Gore. And the message was, I talked to these four people, their stories aren't interesting enough, send me more names. I was like, don't you have a fact? Like, don't you have somebody who works for you who does that stuff? He was doing his own pre-screening. Anyway, I thought to myself, Al Gore might not have made a great president because he might have been slightly micromanagerial. And, you know, some things that Jimmy Carter, you know, checking over the tennis court uh, reservations at the White he, House. He was, a, he was a difficult boss. Um, <laughs> he, he, he was hard to work for. I respect him tremendously. And then he saved my butt in such a, uh, such a generous way. So speaking of Bill Clinton, not using 10 cent words or even nickel words, I, I got my ass handed to me. It was literally the second speech I was writing as presidential speechwriter. And it's not like I walked in all cocky. I've just written for Gore, so I know what I'm doing. I was still green and nervous. And for the only time in my four years in the White House, the briefing was just Al Gore, Lowell Weiss, and Bill Clinton. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. Do you have it? And Did you save the, 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 the thing? Did I save the, the piece speech? of paper that said, that, you know, the, the three of you in the room? Uh, no, no paper to that effect. <gasps> but the story that so emerged is one I've we'll told. Take your word um, for it. Yeah, this was um, not the kind of briefing that I wouldn't would have wanted to be in that august, you know, small little audience with because I just written a speech on a topic that mattered very much to Gore. And there was sort of effectively a baton pass going on where in the first term, Gore was the only person who spoke about climate change and it was really his pet issue. But I think Clinton had come to see that, you know, to get the attention that this issue deserved, it needed to become a presidential level thing as well. And so this was the first time Bill Clinton was giving a speech on climate. It wasn't a huge high powered event, but it was in the East Room of the White House. And I wrote a speech that had a bunch of flourishes. You know, I was swinging for the fences to use a metaphor that will resonate with you, Eric. And Clinton just looked at the first I just swing, swing for the dugout, but that's okay. Is that true? He swing for the dugout? <laughs> yeah, okay. I do. I'm not a great hitter. Okay. All right. I'll take your word for it. And, sorry. and so, you know, the first couple of paragraphs, he just choked. Like, I can't say this. You know, if I get up there, I'll sound like a big peacock. 
And in retrospect, he was right. It was rhetorical flourishes that did not really maximize what he was great at, which is really speaking to people in plain language that they could understand. And so Gort sees me about to get you know in trouble over this. And he gives me this big, broad wink. He had never had this kind of sort of jocular attitude during uh, any of the briefings that I'd done with him on speeches for him. But in this case, it was easy for him to give me that big, broad wink and say, you know, Mr. President, I think the American people, they like rhetoric. <laughs> so that was enough to break the tension. And I got out of it with my job and my and, 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 and my career. So thank hey, Lindsay. Uh, well, that's why you're never going to be president. <laughs> <laughs> but he was right. And the point was was really worth making, that you don't swing for the fences. Maybe, maybe you know, the last person who could maybe was Reagan. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe even before that, you know, you'd say JFK and his reversible raincoat, Ted Sorensen lines, they worked great for him. But that was not who Bill Clinton was. And so I'm, I'm glad that I learned that lesson on, on day two. And I'm guessing that that prepared you to work for another fairly august personage in American history, Bill Gates. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. I mean, having a, a thick skin was helpful. <laughs> so um, Bill, both Bills are insanely smart and in a just different stratospheric level of smart than, than anyone else I've ever been in a room with. And they each have different strengths. It was helpful to have gone through the, the, the White House ringer to, to get ready for Gates. But yeah, really different set of challenges. And by that time, when I was working for, for Gates, it was very little. It was about communications. I had a little bit, as, as you know, from some of our overlap when you were at Hewlett, and more of a programmatic role by that time. Yeah. So off you went to Seattle to work for the Gates Foundation, what was your brief? Because actually, what were your briefs? Because I, I think you had about 17 different business cards, if I recall. I did a bunch of different things. I mean, it was a wonderful jack-of-all-trades job. And just one little twist on the story is actually I started in the D.C. office. That's right. And I worked in the D.C. office for about three and a half years before I came out to Seattle. The Seattle move was prompted by a desire to live in the great Northwest. And it wasn't so much that I needed to be in the Northwest for my job, but I saw an opportunity to sneak across country and uh, very, very, very glad I did. So when you and I got a chance to work together, I had basically four things that were on my plate. And I think I underperformed in all four <laughs> because I had, it was really spread thin, uh, some of which I've been able to make up for in, in subsequent years. So the first thing I did is I, I ran a grant program to support the least very important grantees, but but not super sexy compared to what most of my colleagues were supporting. So I was supporting the infrastructure organizations that are the true backbone of the nonprofit sector, the foundation centers of the world and the guide stars of the world. And frankly, the Gates Foundation had been a bit, a bit of a deadbeat in, in not supporting those organizations when the Hewlett's of the world had really stepped up to provide great support. And, and at that time, the Gates Foundation just felt like we got to stick to our knitting of global health and education. That's what we do. These other organizations are peripheral. But I helped to make an argument that these, no, in order to have a healthy operating, you know, high performance nonprofit sector, these are critical players. And so that that was one role. The other role was as a special projects guy. So Bill and Melinda would go to a conference 
and interact with some other wonderful philanthropists who are in their circle. And someone would say, a Michael Dell would say, hey, we're thinking of making investment in this particular water technology that we got to see when we were in India. You know, do you think this makes sense? And then Bill and Melinda would say, Lowell, with your journalism background, you'd be the perfect person to help us learn about an area that we don't know, that we have no existing expertise in, help to synthesize what the world's experts say on this topic. And so that was fun as all get out. Loved, loved that role. And I get to do that now in my philanthropic advisory work. Um, I also did government relations work. And as you'll remember, that was an era when there was a lot of scrutiny of foundations and, and it is always a cycle. And that was one of sort of the up cycles when the Senate Finance Committee and House Ways and Means Committee were interested in helping the nonprofit sector to, to weed out all the bad stuff that you wouldn't want to see and that were getting exposed in some very powerful newspaper articles in the Boston Globe and elsewhere showing some really lousy practices. And so there was a crackdown. It's like the cicadas. They come crawling up out of the earth every 17 years. It's about years. that it's periodicity <laughs> too. Exactly right. Exactly. And they had every right to look into lousy practices. And as we saw when our former president became president, when you started scratching beneath the surface of the Trump Foundation, you could see that it was not doing anything that looked like it was related to a charitable purpose. So I'm glad that there was that scrutiny. Yeah, so I was such a good foundation. <laughs> yeah, right. a particularly good foundation. So, Lowell, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to get back, and we're going to talk about Leap of Reason, which is this project that you've been working on, and uh, and talk a little bit about what's right and what's wrong with philanthropy, because I know that you have some thoughts on this matter. So we're going to take a very quick break and be back with Lowell Weiss in just a second. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And we are back with Lowell Weiss of Cascade Philanthropy Advisors. And we were talking about your kind of, I don't know, learning experience in the world of philanthropy, clearly in the uh, eye of the tiger, use your, I don't know, whatever, uh, baptism by fire, or bar mitzvah by fire, use your metaphor of choice. So you learned a lot about philanthropy and you spent a lot of time at the Gates Foundation, a fair amount of time. Then you hung out a shingle and now you are advising folks who are engaged in their own philanthropy. How have you taken what you've learned? And you're a great communi communicator. Your work isn't communications per se, but it clearly understands that you have to have a communication strategy to be effective in philanthropy. Can you just give us a little, a little taste of how you have or are applying what you learned through this really interesting career and in, into what you're doing now? And then we'll talk about Leap of Reason, which is this new project you're working on. Sure. I think, yeah, to pick up on your point about communications, that was a fantastic learning early on. And I, I learned it on the, essentially in the coattails of, of Bill and Melinda. I learned it as they learned it. And I think their philosophy going into becoming big time givers 
was that they could make a tremendous impact by giving grants of a size that most of the organizations that they wanted to support had never seen before, transformative size grants. What they came to realize is without attending to sort of the air war and just working at the ground level through individual grants to individual organizations, they were missing a huge part of how they could use their influence. And so they started making a very sizable investment in advocacy, just as, as Hewlett did and Hewlett does. So I think what I learned is that if you're pushing for really important systemic changes, whether it's in education or global health or any other topic, you absolutely need to be thinking about how you use your voice, your connections, your influence, as well as the voice and connections of all of the grantees who are involved in this work. So amplifying their voices and using your own in a brave way, I've found to be absolutely critical for just about every issue I've ever worked on on behalf of a client. And most of it, a lot of funders will say, eh, it's not about us. It's not about what we have to say. It's about the grantees. It's about the work. And maybe that's true and maybe it's not. Where where do you, do you come down on that? Well, I think it really depends on the individual situation. I mean, if you are working for the Gates Foundation and you've got live donors like Bill and Melinda who can pick up the phone and have a conversation within the 501c3 rules that they're operating within, that can be much more effective than other ways of using their resources. Their, their voice, in some cases, is the most important resource that they have. And we're seeing that right now as Bill is speaking about an issue that's not related to what the foundation does, but he just has a new book out on climate change. And there is no doubt that at least in some of the sectors he's talking about, he can really shift a lot of thinking and a lot of dollars in directions that are, are tremendously undercapitalized right now. Yeah, I mean, a lot of folks, to be totally honest, a lot of folks think, geez, Mr. Gates, you're about eh, a decade or two late. Where, where were you back then when all these other folks were getting started on climate and understanding that you have a bully pulpit like few people on the planet? Do you, what do you think about that? Do you was Were you talking about climate back then? Was it one of those many things that you have to juggle and go, oh, well, maybe this isn't the thing that we focus on? Well, I love that he's getting involved now, and I really understand their desire to be focused in their giving, and they're tugged in a million different directions. And the fact that they were so highly focused on education, which is such a complex set of problems, as you know incredibly well, global health, and, and then eventually their scope expanded to global development around the time I was leaving the foundation. Those are a lot of really difficult, complex problems. And so the fact that he wasn't picking climate change initially, I understood. At the time, I didn't think he had unique value to add. And I saw what the Hewlett Foundation was doing and uh, Climate Works and, and so many others. I, I really, I tremendously respected the work that was being done. I didn't see a, a very specific role for Bill. But as the challenge, as, as our society and many others around the planet have decided that they're not able to step up to the challenge. I can see him just sitting on the sidelines and saying, no, you know, the rest of our work is not going to matter that much if we get climate change wrong. And so I think he 
had to lend his dollars and his voice to this issue. I think he came to it that way. I don't know for sure. I haven't been involved in those conversations, but the work that he does on climate change is really with his investor cap on, his Gates Ventures cap, not his Gates Foundation cap. So I think that's how they've managed to kind of bridge that. We're going to stick to what we know really well within the foundation. And then on the side, he can't not. You know, I'm going to borrow a, an expression from our friend Paul Shoemaker in, in his first book. He, he talked about these doers, these hyper agents who felt so compelled to get involved, they couldn't not do it. And I would put that climate change in, in, in that category for Bill. Well, it's a fair point. And it was elegantly responded to. Well, oh, thank so you. Good for you. Now, so speaking of complex, I went down the leap of reason rabbit hole the other day. Can you tell me about what this project is? And uh, there is so much material to, to take in. It, it feels like a life's work in one go. Well, I'm sorry it felt that way. We didn't want to throw you into the deep end, but it's more than just a project. So at its core, it is a learning community. We have 300 nonprofit leaders, foundation leaders, thought leaders who have been invited into this community to, and, and the common denominator is these are all leaders who really care about raising the bar in our sector and helping nonprofits to become high performance organizations as opposed to skate by or survive on crumbs organizations. And it is a great group. I'm constantly learning in my philanthropic advising. I am constantly putting out questions to my peers and say, I'm really struggling with X. Has anyone faced this before? So it's a neat exchange. And some of the materials that you're alluding to, we have a new book, which is what I'd be extremely excited to talk about because we just came out with it and it's got some really good essays. Please do, Lowell. Okay, softball, <laughs> swinging for the dugout. So it, the, the, it's a little Jim Collins sized monograph. It's called Funding Performance, How Great Donors Invest in Grantee Success. And this is part of the Leap of Reason initiative focused on trying to influence funder behavior. And we know that that is a, a tough prospect. Funders are not under a lot of external pressure to do things that are either in their own best interests or their grantees' best interests. And as, as you all know, Eric, there's an expression, if you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation. And uh, we, we would like to see is that there are a set of practices that the best of the best funders are following. And they lead to more impact for the funder and more impact on the ground for that grantee and those that the grantee serves. And they're not, it's not brain surgery. They do involve work. All of them have a cultural element. It's not like a plug and play thing where you just add, you know, pillar one and all of a sudden you're a high performance organization. But some of these things need to happen. And we see COVID, we see the racial justice reckoning, we see this economic crisis as a really good forcing mechanism for people to be introspective about which of these practices they can and should adopt. Can you give us the 10 cent tour? Or what are the one or two or three things that every, every philanthropist or anybody working in philanthropy needs to understand and do? Yeah. And the way I'll put it is in the form of advice that I give to my own clients. I say, Let's default to flexible long-term support. Why would we want to give grantees 
a kind of support that's not as useful to them, that doesn't allow them to uh, invest in learning and improvement, that doesn't let them build up the human or technology systems that they need to deliver the kind of information that you say you want. Let's give them the kind of support they say they need in order to invest in systems, to invest in leadership, to invest in learning. That's a fundamental. And I understand the arguments for other forms of support. And there are times when project support or endowment support makes tons of sense. But I default in my recommendations, I'm always defaulting to general operating support. I think it's just more valuable. Another thing is I have seen, as I've looked at lots of different positive outlier foundations, I see that the best are always willing to go to bat for their grantees in helping them line up other resources. You've heard many times in your philanthropic career, we want this grantee to be sustainable. Well, not many people actually go to the trouble of defining what does sustainable really mean? Is there really such a thing as sustainability unless that organization somehow has a model that can be 100% fueled by earned revenues, which is very, very, very rare. So what does sustainable mean? Very few people define it, and very few people step up to the plate to say, I've got connections, I've got imprimatur. If I believe in this grantee, I want to help that grantee to raise money from others. I want to let that grantee march in front of the grandstand and get a chance to make their case. I want to share my due diligence with others so I can kind of de-risk it and, and take some of the research effort out of it for others. There's a foundation in your neck of the woods in San Francisco, the Malago Foundation, has such a wonderful approach to aggregating funding. Uh, they, they do it in, in the most lightweight way, but that really sets their grantees up for success through their Big Bang Philanthropy Consortium. It's not a big entity with lots of overhead. It's really lightweight, but it has made such a difference for many of their grantees. Well, in just a minute or two that we have left, what would you tell folks other than, I don't know, read the book, who are who are working in philanthropy about how short of trying to get your boss to make long-term general support grants to begin to think about how to actually run an effective organization, how to either measure your effectiveness or understand whether you're on the right track. What are, what are some of these key tenets to philanthropy that you would, you would recommend people to pay better attention to? In one of the essays in this little compendium here, I, I talk about Shoshin, the beginner's mind in Zen Buddhism. It's just having an open mind to learning and improvement, to not assume that you've got the answers, to recognize that the folks who have the best answers to how to solve these super complex problems are the ones who are really close to the problems. And so just going in, in a, in a spirit with that sort of growth mindset that so many people talk about from Carol Dweck's work, where you're not closing your mind to possibility, you're opening your mind to, I wanna learn as much as I possibly can because my money's gonna go a lot farther if I do. And so, yes, it is about long-term flexible support. It is about collaborating with other funders. It's about the way you go about learning and not just relying on sort of a top-down strategy, but to really understand the dynamics that are going on at the ground level. Those are some of the really important points that I'm making with all of my clients and that the essayists here, I'm not the only person who wrote this. I mean, we have essays 
from the brilliant Hillary Pennington at Ford. We have essays from your former colleague, Daniel Stid. We have essays from Bridgespan, from FMA, from Sam Cobbs, who's such an amazing leader talking about switching from the nonprofit side of the table to the for-profit side of the table and understanding equity from a very different lens as a funder and seeing why he, as a black leader, was losing out on grants that others who didn't have his results were getting. He now understands his dynamics better, and he shares those stories really beautifully in this book. Well, it's a really good resource. Actually, my wife would say I have a beginner's mind when it comes to doing the dishes or walking the dog, but (laughs) I don't think that that's what you mean. Well, Lowell Weiss, you're just a pal and and really a someone I look up to and and learn from. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Oh, this was so much fun, Eric. I knew it would be. And yeah, just delighted to do it. Well, thanks again, Lowell Weiss. And we're back. So come on. When did we turn this into a gossip podcast? That was like every, it was almost like an astronomy lesson. It was like every bright light and every bright light in the cosmos Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Bill Gates. It's just incredible. Man, there were some names there. And Lowell's worked with them all. That's, I mean, oh my goodness. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Lest anyone think that I was going easy on Lowell, we had this conversation. He and I had this conversation before things were announced about the Gates Foundation and Bill and Melinda. It wasn't that I was holding back, is that it hadn't happened yet. I would have asked him for sure a question that he would never have answered because he is far too politic. If you listened, if you listened between the lines, you could hear him being extremely gentle and, and politic about uh, his experiences with folks. So he, he I would have asked and he would have figured out a slither out of it. But just for the record, that stuff that hadn't happened when nobody knew what we didn't know. Well, let's parse though what we learned from Lowell, because I, I know the topic that you're discussing is, I don't, I'm not even sure how relevant it is for our considerations, ah, but but you did ask uh, some interesting and I think pretty tough questions in terms of Gates Foundation priorities, because you asked about the climate priority. You know, Bill yeah, Gates yeah. has a recent book on climate. And, you know, I got to say like, again, master's class, first of all, Lowell did a genius, brilliant job of answering the question. <laughs> And he, and he, Master's and he, class in the pick and roll. Well, he, po- go, he politely he politely said to you, "Look, we went around the world, solved you know, right. solved some of the most pressing medical issues in the globe, treated education, dealt with education. We were pretty busy, is what I kind of think what That's he true. said. But then when he was ready to come in, he started talking about it. But then there was another key moment, and I just God, I love that you guys talked about this. Lowell Weiss, one of three people in a room that includes Bill Clinton and Al Gore. And Bill Clinton's first public comments about climate change. And I was like, oh, man. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been, who knows how long that conversation lasted? Is it a couple of minutes? Is it more than 15? Maybe not. But that's a life-changing moment, wouldn't you say? I mean, I loved hearing about that. It reminds me of the time I was on a game show with the comedian Charlie Callis. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure nobody knows who's listening here under the age of 97. Yeah, I completely get this connection. I totally understand what we're talking about. Charlie Cowles and I went up to Charlie Cowles and he did this little gag where he was starting to talk and then an arrow comes in. He he pulls up this arrow and he puts it in his forehead. And afterwards I said, hey, Charlie, did someone shoot that arrow at you during your act once? And he looked at me and said, no, it's just a prop, kid. (laughs) 
I think it's exactly the same experience that Lowell Weiss is in the Oval Office with Bill Clinton and Al Gore, mm. and I'm backstage at a game show with Charlie Callis. Don't you agree? Don't you? <laughs> I'm completely you don't. Lost. I don't. I. I think my brush with greatness is at least as at least as important. And, at and, least, at least. So if you're if you're a speechwriter out there, folks. Yeah. I certainly took the lesson away from that story, which is know who you're writing for. Oh, man. Get a sense of their voice and make sure that you are capturing them. You're never supposed to be different. You know, you really have to channel that voice. But it is also true in communications in general is know who you're talking to and understand what is going to be meaningful to that audience. And I think that's what Bill Clinton had for sure times a million. And Al Gore, not not quite as much. Clinton could move between head and heart, but Gore was persuasive with the head part, missed the heart. Just that was a heartbreaking thing to hear. So, but before we go there, I want it. So think about that moment, Bill Clinton speaking about climate change for the first time as a, as the president, think about it as an output of a philanthropic strategy. Just, just pause for a moment. What a big deal that would have been in the moment, you know, for everybody who is just getting organized on climate. I mean, this entire medley of foundations that are investing here, even the national green groups, they weren't really on that issue yet. And it made me wonder, you know, what's it worth? A president says something for the first time, you know, did that move a billion dollars of public funding? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, so it was, it was funny. It's like, we got the insight, sort of the art and the nuance of Bill Clinton knowing the genius communicator that he was. I'm not going to say this. I can't say this. I mean, I just how. I'd love to get a draft of the speech that was actually, you know, that was actually published, yeah. what he actually said, even the handful of minutes he spent on it. But it just made me think, like, what an outcome. You know, 30, this is 30 years ago, right? We've been running down this this path really intensely now for the last 30 years. But this was one of the really first moments, you know, it had finally gone up to the level of a president being willing to say something. Al Gore had written his book, you know, a little bit before that. I mean, just, I mean, it's it's like a seminal moment in history. And Lil Weiss was one of the three people in the room. I mean, that's incredible. It's pretty amazing. It really is amazing. That's, yeah. Yeah, okay, you're right. Better, better, <laughs> better. than Charlie Callis. Better, better. Look him, look him up. Look up Charlie Callis, though. Not a funny comedian. What do you make? Because it sounds like there were a couple of places that Lil had to rely on the fact that he had a pretty thick skin, given the worlds he was operating in. <laughs> And, and, you know, we haven't talked about that a lot here, you know, in this podcast, but this is part of the doing the job, right? Like you come in, you've got some stuff, you're sharing it and you may or may not be trying to collaborate with somebody who's having a good day, or you may or may not hit the mark, you know, in terms of what you're doing. And you've got to be able to roll with that. When I think about the point in his career and his life that Lowell was at when he was having these conversations, his ability to sort of be gracious and, you know, accommodating, but still be super professional uh, that's a maturity that I hope I acquire about a decade from now. You know what I mean? But that's what I, I hope I'm headed there. What do you think about that? It's because it's, well, we haven't talked about it that much. Yes, it's true. He Lowell certainly seemed to have comported himself with aplomb in the face of some, <laughs> let's call it, mm, challenging behavior. But what we're also seeing right now is that that kind of behavior isn't acceptable anymore. Yeah. And and nor, nor should it be. <laughs> No one deserves to be yelled at. Nobody. We are all faced with under a lot of pressure and all that kind of stuff. But we're seeing it in boardrooms and we're seeing it in restaurant kitchens and all these other places where we're just learning that we need to be 
more humane, that that just doesn't cut it anymore. It's kind of an interesting look into how life was. And I experienced that also. We've all experienced it in yeah. our careers. I was very, very, very briefly a speechwriter for a senator from an eastern state. That state and the senator's name will go unnoticed <laughs> or unmentioned. But it was hard. I had some of the hardest days in my life. And I would never subject anybody to that. But yeah, Lowell seems to have uh, had his had his experiences over the years. That's for sure. Well, and then, you, you know, you hold that space and you're able to continue providing strategy and guidance, even despite the circumstances. And I have to say, jumping to the Gates Foundation. So here we get this great glimpse of the power of a journalist, of a professionally trained journalist to sit with the special projects function. And when he described what that meant, I was like, oh, this is where journalism really shines. Bill and Melinda are at a conference. Somebody randomly comes up. So think about the, the transaction there. They've got FaceTime with Bill and Melinda Gates. And they, they, so they've got 90 seconds and they've got an ask that's compelling enough that they come out of that room and they say, hey, Lowell, just create an encyclopedic knowledge and understanding of this issue. Summarize <laughs> it in two pages and let's figure out how we can support and Lowell takes that task on, and that's a perfect task for a journalist, don't you think? Yeah. Like this is that journalist sensibility, like the best expression of it, I feel like, in the philanthropic space, don't you think? Yeah, I I used to love to hire journalists because that's exactly what they could do. They become an expert in 30 seconds, they could figure out how to talk about it in a way that makes sense. They could turn it into something compelling, they could help engage people on it. Journalists are great. So oh, we've had this conversation many times before. Once I think I said that half of the journalists don't don't, <laughs> don't, work. don't, well, don't work out in philanthropy, but it's only because they they're too objective. Right. And what we want to do is we want to take the the good journalists who are objectively subjective about the issue that you're working on, in which case they can say, oh, and actually objectivity is good because you can understand what a conflicting argument right. might be and address it. Right. And that's important. So you can take somebody else's perspective and then with any luck at all, rip it to shreds. Well, it's funny. It makes me wonder, and let's pretend there's such a thing as page one anymore, but it makes me wonder what's harder to break page one, right? Uh, versus articulate the strategy for a new idea where there's a lot of scrutiny that's going to be given to it and have that lead to some action in a philanthropic space. I It, it gives you some indication of all the work that goes into both the background of both those things, doesn't it? I mean, I think that, that was my thing about that. I just... What an amazing role to have for Lowell. For the record, there is a page one at the Brown Residence where two <laughs> newspapers made out of paper hit my front porch every morning. They always have. And until they stop making them that yeah. way, they always will. But yes, you're, you're, you're totally right. So tell me, because I know we only have a little bit of time left, but you've got to, we've got to talk about Leap of Reason. Because here, yeah. here, here it is. Here's another person, right? Just great fellow traveler in the space done so much cool work, works with so many different people and comes up with this really interesting, very compelling way to organize and collect best practice thinking about how to do this better. And I've just, I was trying not to be insulted because I'm not in the group. I hope you are, you know, I hope you, I hope you, I don't know if you're part of the 300 or not, but I thought I, that was, I, I loved hearing I'm about nothing. I'm a wiggly worm, <laughs> Kirk. I'm just 
a wiggly worm. Well, they have their book, but I also, I wonder, I'd love it if they could actually publish, you know, summaries of their list or something like that. You know, it's another one of these communities that we've come across doing the podcast where these really well-intentioned, thoughtful, and frankly, brilliant people are all collaborating and thinking about how to do this better. Um, Yeah. One of the things that I have found over in, in my years in this business is that people are generous. They really are truly generous. If you ask them for something, most of the time they will give it to you if they have the wherewithal, if they have the time. And this is a great example of that. This is a community of people who are just putting things into the kitty. Yeah. And it's they're not doing it for money. They're doing it because they want to help other people make a difference. And so that's why this is a, a wonderful community. And so this is something that Mary Marino and a number of colleagues in philanthropy and with Lowell as a, an amazing partner have created this astonishing resource full of all these people who exist to add their thoughts and make things better. And if yeah. you can, as I said, I went down the leap of reason rat hole where <laughs> I talked to Lowell because there's just so much there. There, yeah. there's a there's essays and documents and resources and re, all the kinds of stuff. Uh, if you are interested in this kind of work, this is a, an amazing, amazing resource. And I strongly encourage people to check out leap of reason and to, to learn more and to, and push back as well, because that's another thing. Folks, we get better by being asked difficult questions and to have our assumptions challenged and have somebody come up with a better idea. That's that's why people are, I believe, contributing to this because it is a way to, to surface ideas and to test them and, and to improve them. Well, and, and while the goals might be shared, all the circumstances are unique. Like I love that back and forth you guys had about if you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation, you know I mean? So, so even as people are wrestling with these topics, they're applying it in such different, you know, situations. So that community of learners, that shared community, it just seems like what a genius idea to get people talking about that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really, really cool. Well, I mean, Lowell Weiss, what a contributor to let's hear it. And, um, this notion of let's keep the beginner's mind. This is why we're doing a podcast. This is why this is a journey of discovery. This oh. is a podcast of the beginner's mind. And we're learning oh. and we're learning from people like Lowell. It's just so great. I love hearing Stop about Stop yelling at me, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. This was awesome. Lowell Weiss on Let's Hear It. Thank you so much for joining us. And Eric, that was awesome. Thanks for doing that. That was great. See you all next time. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. <laughs>